Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing in our series in the book of Revelation today with a message entitled The Hope of the Resurrection. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 to 14, as we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, the Apostle Paul says, If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Indeed, everything in the Bible comes down to that one important event. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And in that statement is the hope of every single child of God. We're banking on the truth of the resurrection. Now, when it comes to resurrections from the dead, please be aware that the Bible contains a number of them. There are three in the Old Testament. Elijah the prophet raised the son of a widow from Zarephath who had died. Elisha, the successor of Elijah, raised the son of a Shunammite woman from death. And a man was raised from the dead when his lifeless corpse touched Elisha's bones. Jesus raised three people from the dead, the son of a widow from Nain, the daughter of a synagogue ruler named Jairus, and of course, the well-known raising of Lazarus. Peter raised Dorcas from the dead, and Paul raised Eutychus. Furthermore, we also know that after the resurrection of Jesus, according to Matthew 27, verses 50 to 53, many saints who had died were raised and coming out of their tombs appeared to many. What became of them after that? Well, we simply don't know. I mean, perhaps they lived out a full life, but I think it's more likely that they were taken immediately after that into glory. Of course, all these resurrections are not like the resurrection of Jesus. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, he was raised only to die again. Jesus, however, was raised with the body that is to come. His resurrection and his resurrection alone is the first fruit of the resurrections that will come at the end of the age. The other resurrections are but an indication that resurrection from the dead is not an impossible scenario. I'm getting sidetracked. I have wanted to highlight that while a resurrection from the dead is a very unusual event, it's not an impossible event. I say that because today we're going to explore the passage from Revelation 11 in which two witnesses are raised from the dead. You know, for those who say that the description of what occurs in Revelation 11 is just too outlandish to believe it could literally happen and must therefore merely be symbolic, well, they forget that the account of resurrections we already find in the Bible. If you believe in those matters, I suspect you won't have any problem with the resurrection of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Now, with every resurrection, there is a signal of hope. Death, war, murder, hatred. I mean, these things will not have the last word. God will have the last word. As Acts 26 verse 8 says, why should any of you think it impossible for God to raise the dead? Well, with that in mind, I'm reading Revelation 11, 7 to 14. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. 
For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. You know, in our study of Revelation, we've been studying the remarkable events of Revelation 11. You know, prior to this chapter, we've seen the blowing of the trumpet signaling the day of the Lord and the beginning of the tribulation. God begins to pour out plagues on the earth even while he protects and preserves his own. But then after the blowing of the sixth trumpet, we've had an interlude. You know, by now we expect this because that's not unlike the earlier breaking of the seven seals. Before the last seal was broken, we had an interlude which helped us to see that the church of Jesus Christ would successfully pass through great trouble and be presented as the victorious church before the throne. And that's also the pattern in the blowing of the trumpets. If I've been right that the trumpets represent the beginning of the day of the Lord, then we now see God pouring out judgment on the earth in preparation for the final judgment. But before the last trumpet sounds and the kingdom is inaugurated, the book of Revelation presents us with another interlude. Now, this time, as before, we deal with a theological theme. But this time, a great angel appears to John with a little scroll in his hand. John is called upon to eat it. It's sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. Chapter 11, as we've seen, is the content of that scroll. The reason the little scroll is sweet is because the content of the message of Revelation 11 is sweet. In essence, we have learned from Revelation 11 that the church will complete her mission. Jesus' words that this gospel will be preached to all nations as a testimony to the world, well, that's going to be completed. Jesus will take for himself men from every language and tribe and nation and tongue. Furthermore, God will raise up his witnesses to take the gospel back to Israel. And a great company of the Jewish community are going to be grafted back into the vine. The church's mission is completed. But the scroll is extremely sour in John's stomach because the cost, well, the cost of such an enterprise is much greater than we might have ever expected. What follows in Revelation 11 is Antichrist turning against the church and causing the greatest abomination of desolation in history. And then in an event which we won't fully understand until the last days, God raises up two witnesses in Jerusalem whose remarkable ministry in that city makes the whole earth take notice. Their success is a converting of the ancient Jewish people, and that has worldwide ramifications. But the two witnesses are unstoppable until such a time in which God mandates that their ministry ends. According to our reading of Revelation, after three and a half years, their ministry does come to an end, and God allows the beast and the forces of darkness to kill them. And with their death, as we're going to see, the day of the reaching of the lost seems to the most part to be over. 
a great and a dreadful persecution of the church ensues, a persecution which is greater than has ever been seen in human history. Yeah, it's true that the elect of God have been shielded from the wrath of him who sits on the throne, but they will not be shielded from the wrath of the beast. So, from the description of verse 7, the beast makes war on the two witnesses and he kills them. From the perspective of their enemies, this must have seemed like a surprise because up until that moment, these two witnesses seemed unstoppable. They were divinely protected by God. But then suddenly, God's protection from them is withdrawn. I mean, that moment signals the beginning of the second half of the Great Tribulation. This will be a time of unequaled fury not seen since the beginning of the creation. But why does all of that happen? Well, when we get to chapter 12, which we will do, John will explain that mystery to us fully. But for now, we're simply called upon to observe that occurrence. Now, verse 8 tells us that at the death of these two witnesses, their, their dead bodies are left to lie openly in the streets of the city. Now, if you know anything about the ancient Near Eastern world, you'll know that a dead body that's left without burial, well, that's, that's ultimately an act of contempt and of indignity to the dead. I mean, leaving their bodies in full view is an act of unbridled hatred towards those individuals. And by the way, we have a story of John Wycliffe's bones being dug up and actually burned after his death. It's the same kind of an idea. It's the indignity to the body. See, when we come to verse 9, we we find the scope of the ministry of these two witnesses. We're told that peoples and tribes and languages and nations are going to gaze at their dead bodies. You know, it would seem from reading that that this is a worldwide phenomenon. The event of their witness and of their death has captured the intention of the earth. Now, of course, by this time, the earth is aware of, of the supernatural plagues coming from God. But the killing of the two witnesses must then seem to the earth that the Antichrist has finally triumphed over God himself. In a moment of unexpected victory, a sinful earth breaks into open celebration. People exchange presents, and it would seem that the earth becomes truly unified in their hatred of these two witnesses and the God who sent them. The deeply hardened contempt of the God of heaven now forms, and the church itself will become the object of that hatred. As John, who saw these things, must now have realized, the little scroll given to him by the angel is souring in his stomach. We teach the Bible simple, but describes the core of mission at Back to the Bible Canada. Everything done is stimulated by a passion for connecting people to Jesus through the teaching of His Word. That's the purpose behind the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld and ministry programs like Laugh Again and In Doubt. June is a critical month that allows Back to the Bible Canada to finish our fiscal year well and create a new launching pad for future ministry. This year's goal is $338,000. The goal is a great challenge, but it allows for the ministry to be sustained and new opportunities initiated. As an incentive, a group of ministry friends have committed to a $75,000 match campaign. So for every dollar, 50, 500, whatever your gift might be, 
will be matched dollar for dollar up to $75,000. If you believe in this ministry, join us with your investment in Bible teaching today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. According to Revelation 11, verse 3, the two witnesses described in this passage prophesy for 1,260 days or for three and a half years. And after this period of time, according to verse 7, Antichrist himself is able to kill them. And then, according to verse 9, the bodies of the two men lie exposed out in the open on the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. Because the time of their prophesying is three and a half years, and the time in which their bodies lie in the streets of Jerusalem is three and a half days, a great many Bible students assume that these numbers must be symbolic. Now, I think that biblical numbers can be both literal and symbolic at the same time. I mean, consider, for instance, that Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and that Moses was 40 days on the mountain when he received the Ten Commandments, and that Jesus was in the wilderness of Judah fasting and being tempted by Satan for 40 days. See, I have no doubt that there is a relationship between those numbers and that they have symbolic significance, but I also have no doubt that the numbers are literal at the same time. Literal and symbolic are not always separate categories. And that's what I think is going on in Revelation 11, verse 9. See, in the ancient world, the longer a dead body is exposed to the elements without being buried, the greater the humiliation. And that might be the point here. See, they've ministered for three and a half years, but their dead bodies are exposed for only three and a half days. See, I wonder if the point is not that the indignity of the two witnesses, and perhaps for the whole people of God, is that the period of suffering and indignity is far overshadowed by the glory of the fulfillment of the task that God has assigned to us. Now to verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who saw them. See, that phrase, breath of life, is a phrase that reminds us of all of life. You know, so for instance, way back in Genesis 6, verse 17, when God's speaking about a global flood, here's what he says. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Or to put that matter another way, from the, from the biblical perspective, the difference between life and death is the breath of life. Once the breath of life has departed, death ensues. But there's something else here. When God first created the man, Genesis 2 verse 7 says that God breathed into him the breath of life. And so the breath of life comes from God. He gives it, and according to his will, and he withdraws it also according to his will. A great many Bible teachers have also pointed out that there are similarities here between Revelation 11 and Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37 is that famous passage about the Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel is taken by the Lord into the middle of a large valley that's full of dry bones, and he's asked a question. Son of man, can these bones live? And of course, the natural answer would be, well, no, they can't. The breath of life has ceased, and once that's gone, they can't live. But of course, Ezekiel knows his God, and he realizes that nothing is impossible for God. And so, in answer to the question of whether those bones can live, he wisely answers, 
Oh, Lord God, you know. I mean, that's a good answer. Now, in Ezekiel, the vision of the bones symbolizes God's restoring of Israel after she's been defeated and then taken into exile. But the point is always the same. As Acts 26 verse 8 says, why should any of you think it impossible for God to raise the dead? I mean, after all, the breath of life comes from God, and if that's so, he can breathe life into dead bodies. Many of you know the account of Nahum, and he was the Assyrian commander who had leprosy. He had a slave girl from Israel, and she was a young girl whom he had taken captive in one of his battles with Israel. And this girl tells Naaman that there's a prophet in Israel who has the power to cure leprosy. And so he takes a great amount of silver and gold, and with that gift, sends a letter to the king of Israel, hoping that the king of Israel will be involved in healing his leprosy. The king of Israel is a godless man, and he's no interest in the ministry of Elisha the prophet. Instead, the king of Israel sees this in political terms. He thinks the Assyrians are looking for a reason for war. So I'm reading 2 Kings 5, verse 7. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God, listen to this, to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? That's the issue. Notice that the king of Israel doesn't say it the other way around. Not, God can make alive and kill. Rather, he says, God kills and makes alive. Even though he's a pagan, Israel's king knows that to be true. This power is God's alone. If God can put breath of life into us, can he not do what he asked of Ezekiel? Can these bones live? Can this dead body live? Can I die, be planted in the earth, and yet at the same time, can I live again? See, the answer to that question lies not in science or in human opinion. The answer to that question lies in God. If he who put the breath of life into us in the first place decides to do so, we will live. See, the reason the resurrection of the two witnesses is of such hope to believers is that it testifies to the watching world and to the church of Jesus Christ that death does not have the final word. Nor does Antichrist who can kill. God always has the final word. And that sometime in the future, when the madness of a sin-infested world comes to a zenith, and where every child of God is targeted for death, God puts his breath of life into these two dead witnesses as a testimony that it is God who has the last word. The Bible says that great fear fell upon those who saw them. It's as if the watching world also recognizes that this is a symbol of the long-anticipated resurrection of the dead that will come at the end of history. Verse 12 tells us that after their resurrection, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here, and they went into heaven in a cloud. Now, I need to acknowledge that there are those who argue that the two witnesses are symbolic and that this catching up of the two witnesses into the clouds to be with the Lord, in their view, is a mid-tribulational rapture. Now, I maintain my position that I always want to show respect and honor for any Bible-believing faithful interpreter of a text. You know, I've tried to consistently say that there are, in fact, wonderful and theologically sound believers who have a very high view of Scripture and who will disagree with some of the details around the interpretation of Revelation. Now, while I acknowledge that from my vantage point, see, I can't believe that Revelation 11 describes such an event. You know, for one, the witnesses lie dead in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, and and I, for the life of me, can't imagine what that might mean if that should refer to the whole church. 
you know, for my part, I'm content to understand that these two men are in fact real persons who in the future will be miraculously raised to heaven to be with the Lord forever. Now, verse 13 says that with their resurrection, there's an earthquake and a tenth of the city of Jerusalem is destroyed and 7,000 people die in the quake. Again, as I mentioned before in our study, because when John wrote Revelation, there was no Jerusalem. It had been destroyed. We have to assume here that John imagines the city to have been rebuilt. You know, at any rate, the text is not saying that one-tenth of the people in Jerusalem are killed, only that one-tenth of the city is destroyed, resulting in 7,000 deaths. John's not telling us how large Jerusalem will be in the future. I mean, Revelation just never contains those kinds of details. But of genuine interest to all who read Revelation is that last line in verse 13. It says, the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, the rest mentioned here must refer, I think, to the rest of the people in the city of Jerusalem. But what does John mean when he said, they gave glory to God? Does he mean that the rest of Jerusalem believed the gospel? Now, those who argue that's exactly what happened will argue for the conversion of the Jewish people here. Now, people who hold this position will will point to other Bible texts that use the phrase as a synonym for conversion. So, for instance, Romans 4.20, speaking of Abraham's faith, says that he gave glory to God. But I also know that there are other Bible passages, such as Acts 12.23, where giving glory to God means no more than acknowledging that God has done something. So for my part, I don't know how to understand that phrase. At the very least, it will mean that the citizens of Jerusalem all acknowledge that the raising up of the two witnesses means that they understand that this has been done by God. And for all of us who read this today, we too give glory to God. Why should we think it incredible that God should raise the dead? Indeed, God does raise the dead, and that means that whatever lies before the church or individual believers, God always has the last word. And our God will raise with Christ all who hope in Him. John, a great message. It made me think, though, you know, we have a tendency to place limitations on God, even though we look at the Word of God and it would suggest anything but. But really, for us to have hope means that we need to commit to the truth that nothing is impossible. Yeah, you know, we look at the Word and we see that. I would argue, take a look at creation and see that. I mean, wherever you live, look at the grandeur of nature and realize that there was a time when there was nothing at all. And God spoke all of that into existence. Would it be so hard for us to think that God raises the dead and that God keeps every single promise that he's made? I think that the greater the promise, the greater the faith is required. But really, our faith is not that anything is possible. Our faith is that with God, everything is possible. Amen. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada. Well, we teach the Bible. This is one of the most critical months of the year financially for Back to the Bible Canada. June is our fiscal year end and will dictate many of the plans for ministry moving forward. This month, our goal is to raise $338,000, a lofty but reachable goal as we work together for a common purpose, teaching the Bible. 
One reason this goal is attainable is the special commitment of ministry friends to a $75,000 match campaign. Perhaps you'd consider a special gift this month that would make the most of this match campaign. Your gift of $100 would become $200, $500 become $1,000. Together the goal will be achieved and the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada sustain and increase in its impact. Call today with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And remember, what you're investing in is quite simple. We teach the Bible.